right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Hey, gang, welcome. Hey, if you, this is last call. If you did not get notes as you came in, there are some notes right back here. Uh, and Rob's got some in his hand. Raise your hand if you don't have some. We can have somebody bring them to you. Uh, but you will need notes for tonight. Uh, and so we've got a whole packet for you. We want to make sure you have it. Uh, and so don't say, oh, look, I'm with somebody else. We're going too fast. All right, you're going to need your own. Uh, and so make sure you grab that. Uh, and we will jump through in just a second. Welcome uh, to One Night Only. We got four special Wednesday nights, all of them very different. Uh, I see a lot of new faces. Some of you guys are here for Double Oak University. Some of you guys haven't normally been here on a Wednesday night, so welcome. We're glad you're here. Hope you get a chance to meet some new people, make some new friends. Uh, We do this a lot on Wednesday night, and it's a great opportunity to build community. So welcome to visitors. Welcome to folks who've been here a while. Glad that you are here. Tonight, uh, we are doing something unique. I haven't done this in about 10 years. Uh, but we're doing the entire Bible in 50 minutes. Now, uh, for those of you who were not pre-warned, uh, I may talk fast, all right? Uh, this, is a, this is an ambitious thing, all right? I've clocked it in, and I think I can actually make this work. Um, I will probably read uh, pretty fast, which is why I gave you the notes. I want you to be able to have it there uh, and look at it. Uh, but uh, look, I am excited that you guys are here, and we're going to get to go on this journey together. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, hey, let, we're going to say a prayer in just a moment uh, before we get rolling. Uh, let me ask a special prayer request. Uh, our friend Matt Powell uh, typically is right back here. He's our tech administrator and runs all of these things. And I mean, he has been very sick for the past few days uh, and is still struggling with uh, just a chest infection. Uh, and so we're going to say a special prayer for him, uh, as well as just for all of us as we get ready tonight. But join me in prayer with me, if you would. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you. I thank you for the family of faith that you build here at the church. Uh, God, we're so excited about what you're doing in us. And Father, even tonight, uh, as we come to look at your word and just the grand narrative of what you have been doing and are doing in us and through history, uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us clarity, you would give us vision, you would show us more of who you are and give us even more reason to glorify you. Lord, I want to lift up my brother Matt. Uh, Father, as he continues to struggle, we pray for healing for him. God, that you literally, even now, would put your hand of healing upon him, that you would help him. Uh, God, he helps us so much in so many ways. But Father, we lift him up and ask for your special blessing to be upon him. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And we all said... Amen. Amen. All right. If you're coming in, go ahead and grab notes as you're coming in. Uh, You're going to need those and then grab a seat and we're going to get rolling because it is 632 and I only have 58 minutes left. Um, All right. So let me say a couple statements to you and see what you think about them. The first one is this. The Sith Lord unveiled his massive evil plan. What do you do with that? How do you understand a statement like that? Well, some of you in the room are going, okay, Sith Lord, that sounds Star Wars. So I'm in the Star Wars universe, but Sith Lord, that could be any number of Sith Lords. So which movie are we talking about? Are we talking about original Star Wars movies? Are we talking about prequel movies? Are we talking about sequel movies? Uh, and which one, which plan is he talking about? I think I generally know this, but that could mean a lot of different Things And if you're not a Star Wars fan at all, you're going, I still have no idea what you're talking about. None of those words that you just said make any sense to me. So let me throw another one at you. Uh, It is third and long, and this play will determine everything. All right? What does that mean to you? You're like, okay, all right, third and long. We're talking football. Uh, Third and long means that we've got a lot lot of yards to get a first down. Uh, But this play is going to determine everything. All right, that could mean a lot of different things. What are we talking about? Are we in the first half? Are we in the second half? Who's playing? 
What, what conference are we in? Are we talking about, uh, are we talking about nationals? Yeah, come on in, students. Come on in, come on in, come on in, come on in. Come on in. It's good. Uh, we, got all, we got students, come on in. So, so come on in, come on in, come on in. We got notes. Pick up notes as you're coming in. All the students, come on in, come on in, come on in, come on in. Here we go. I got, I, I'm looking at like 400 people in the, in the comments here. All right, so grab your notes. Come on in, grab a seat. It's going to be fine. Uh, we love students. It's great. Students are always welcome. So please, come on in. Uh, so grab all of you need to do, and there it's going to be fine, and there's seats all over here. So grab some notes, and you'll be in. Look, if you say third and long, this determines everything. Uh, is this a conference net championship? What division are we in? Is this a national championship? Uh, like, if I don't know all these other things, well, what does that even mean? And if you're not a football fan... None of the things I just said made any sense to you either. You're like, I don't even know what you're talking about with like conferences and, and downs and, and divisions and, and what does even all that mean? Uh, listen, when you look at any one scene in a movie or you look at any one play in a game, you might be able to understand just like what you're looking at, but you can't really understand it until you understand the full context. You can't understand this one idea, this one event, until you actually know the full idea of what is happening. And look, for many of us, when it comes to our Bible reading, what we do is, is we just look at individual plays. We look at individual scenes. We open up our Bibles and we ask the Lord to teach us, to give us wisdom, to say, hey, teach me something, show me something, and, and he will. He can show you things, but if you don't actually understand the full context, if you don't know the full story, the grand narrative, it's very hard to truly understand what you're reading. So what we're going to do tonight is something interesting. Instead of just looking at one particular passage, we want to really scale back and look at the entire thing. Because what we're going to find out is that in the Bible, there is one grand story being told. That when you look at the Bible as a whole, this is not just a collection of a bunch of random different things. God is doing something from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to the end of this earthly world. God is doing something. There is a grand narrative that covers all of this. And that story is epic in scale. Uh, to understand kind of an epic narrative, we need to think broader than just an individual movie or an individual story. Uh, if you are a Marvel Avengers fan, I want you to think about all of the Avengers movies over the past 15 years or so. In 2008, Iron Man comes out. It's the first Marvel movie. And over the course of the next 12 years, they will release 23 different films. 23 different films that include Thor and Iron Man and Spider-Man and Hulk and Captain America and, and all these other characters. And they have all these individual stories, but they tell the Infinity War saga. And if you watch all 23 films, which my wife and I did over the course of the pandemic, like many of you, all right, and we watch them in chronological order, it is this one mega story. But inside of it, you've got all these little stories, don't just read these little stories in the Bible and say, okay, I know this character or this character or this story or this story. There is a grand narrative arc, a grand epic story that unfolds over the course of the Bible. And this is what you and I have to understand. And so in a nutshell, here is that epic story. When you and I read the Bible, it is the story of God saving his people. It is even more specifically the story of Jesus and his kingdom. And if you really wanted to give a title to it, this is the story of salvation history. 
When you read the Bible from cover to cover, what is uncovered, what is unveiled is the story of salvation history, how God saves his people, how Jesus comes to build his kingdom. And so that's really what we're going to be looking at tonight uh, over the course of the Bible. Now, if you're saying, Adam, that's really interesting for you to say, uh, but it's always easy to kind of look back and just kind of paste a story onto history or to paste a story onto everything. But this is actually what Jesus says to us. Uh, And and this is not right there in your notes, but let me just read this. This is Luke 24, uh, starting at verse 25. Jesus says this. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I'm gonna say that one more time. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus thinks back to this whole, all of these stories of the Old Testament, he says, these stories, the whole thing is about me. It's about who I am and what I am doing. And so Jesus is telling us there's a grand story happening. Jesus doesn't just show up in the middle. He says, no, it's all been about me. It's all through me. You need to understand what I'm doing through this whole narrative arc. So before we jump, actually jump in to do that, I'm going to do that in 50 minutes or the Bible in 12 easy steps. Uh, let me show you a couple of different things. All right, I don't normally use notes, but we're going to do that tonight because um, I got a lot of pages and they'll get in my way. All right, first off, look at the page, uh, the packet I've given you. You've got a couple things there about the, con- uh, the structure of the Bible. What are we looking at here? Well, the Bible is in two parts. You have Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. Old Testament has 28 authors. New Testament has nine authors. No, Old Testament written over 1,500 years. New Testament only written over about 100. But the Old Testament spans 4,000 years of history, while the New Testament spans 2,000 years if you include all the time up until today. Now, here's the thing that really kind of trips people out when it comes to the Bible. The Bible is not written chronologically like you and I would expect it to be. When people say, I'm just going to read the Bible all the way through, you just start getting really weirded out because it doesn't fit It doesn't work. Why? Because it's organized in a a very unique way. The Old Testament is organized by genre and length. Here's what that means. So in the first 17 books of the Old Testament, you have history. This is really just kind of the history of what happens. But after that, you get wisdom, poetry, and prophecy. And all of those books fit in to the first 17. So you read the first 17 books of history and it all goes pretty linear. And then everything after that, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets, they're all sprinkled in through this story. And so you can't really understand it as if like, hey, I'm just gonna read it all straight through and there's extra stuff. No, 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 it's all kind of intermixed together. The New Testament is similar. It is organized by genre, author, and length. Here's what that means. In the New Testament, you start off with history yet again. You have Gospels and Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. This tells you history. Then after that, we get the Pauline letters. But these are not organized chronologically. They're organized by length. Romans is the first there because it's the longest. First Corinthians comes after that because it's the second longest. These are not in chronological order. After the Pauline letters to churches, we get Pauline letters to individuals, like to Timothy, All right, and to different people. Those are also organized by length 
not time. So you get all the Pauline letters and then you get all the extra letters, people, the letters that are written by other people. So 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st Peter. You've got other authors and at the end of that, we finally get Revelation, all right? So even in the New Testament, you can't read this as if it all goes start to finish. It's organized in a very unique way. Now, the second thing I have down there on the, on the list is major events in chronological order. And so I was just thinking through all the stories that people just kind of tell me. And if you put them all in a list, you can kind of see kind of where they all fit there. But what I want to do tonight is give you an outline of the Bible, uh, the whole Bible in 12 easy steps. And so with about, I don't know what, 38 minutes left, let's try this out. Step number one, we have the creation, the fall, and the flood. Where should we begin? In the beginning. So in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God created the heavens and the earth. P.S. On the back side of there, if you do want to see chronological stuff, I put that there as well so you can kind of see how things would, how, would be read if they were chronological. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God makes everything. He makes the universe. He makes the planet. He makes everything on the planet until he finally makes us. And he didn't just do this willy-nilly. He has a very specific purpose in mind. And so look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. You have that there. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds, the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so here's the design. God creates the planet and he makes us in his image. He has fellowship with us. He has a relationship with us. And then he says, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. He gives us something called dominion. Now, that does not mean to dominate the earth in some evil sense. It means to reign over it, to develop it, right? To, to harness its potential and, and develop it, to tend it, to bring it about. God puts us as kind of like masters over this world, but we're also supposed to do that in conjunction with him. We serve him. We live in fellowship with him. And as we were going to fill the earth and subdue it, as we reign over the world, God is right there with us. His dwelling is with us. This was his plan from the beginning. But this plan does not survive all that long. A mysterious serpent shows up to deceive Adam and Eve. The serpent tempts them to do the one thing God said that they should not do. God says, don't eat of this one tree because if you do, you will die. And because they looked at that fruit and it wasn't just that they wanted to eat it, they said, this would make us like God. We could rebel against him. We could disobey his command. We could be our own people. We don't have to rule under you. We can rule on our own and you can be kind of on the side, but you don't have to be king. We can be kings ourselves. And when they ate of that fruit, they spiritually died. God has to expel them from the garden. And now instead of dwelling with God forever and fulfilling his created person, purpose, now they are expelled from the garden. And because the world is bound up with us, the world itself is bound up under a curse. Men are cursed. Women are cursed. The world is cursed. Why? Because it no longer has a master. We are enslaved by sin. And so sin now rules over the whole planet. But God does not forsake his people. Even though he has to send them out of the garden, he does not abandon them. 
But as he does so, things go back from bad to worse. Adam and Eve will have Cain and Abel. Cain will then kill Abel. First two brothers, first murder happens on the planet. And from there, people just continue to kill one another, to steal from one another, to, to maim one another, to abuse one another. This goes from bad to worse. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was over only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so this is the preamble to the flood. evil is proliferating on the planet. And so God says, well, let's just take the most righteous person on the planet. I will save him. I will save some of the animals. They go through on the ark and we start again, but sin survives. Because even when you take the best of us, you still have a problem with sin. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good on our own. And so sin again proliferates on the planet. This will turn into the Tower of Babel. Nations are formed and they would say, hey, let's build up a tower to the heavens. We can be just like God. We're gonna show this to everybody. God will frustrate their speech. They will be confused. They will begin to spread out all over the planet. But this is covering about 2,000 years of history as all of this evil is unfolding. That brings us to step number two, Abraham and the creation of Israel. Abraham and the creation of Israel. God is still interested in his plan of dwelling with us and saving us. And so he grabs a man named Abram. There's nothing important about him. He has not done anything to deserve this. God just grabs him and makes him a promise. Look at Genesis 12, verses one through three. It says, now the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is interesting. God is making a covenant with Abraham, a promise, a pact. And he says, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. You follow me and I'm going to bless you. But notice why he's doing this. This isn't just for Abraham's sake. He says, no, I want to bless everybody through you. All the families of the earth, the same families who were just rebelling against me at the Tower of Babel, all the ones who are proliferating evil. I want to bless the whole world. And Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the families, all the nations of the earth. And so God says, I'm going to make you a nation. This starts with Isaac. Isaac is the son of promise. They don't have kids when they would normally have kids. They're well over in age until finally God gives the promised son in Isaac. And they're thrilled about Isaac. But once Isaac kind of comes of age, God asks something terrible. He says, Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him to me. This is weird. This is out of character. God's never asked anything like it before and doesn't ask anything like it since. But he takes him up onto the mountain and Abraham is willing to do this. And look at how God responds. This is Genesis 22, starting verse 10 through 13. It says, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now notice that wording. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. All right, so God doesn't have him go through it. He says, you do not have to sacrifice your only son. He gives a substitute. There's a ram already there. God provided it to say, you can use this sacrifice instead of your son, your only son. And so Isaac lives, and Isaac will then have uh, children. um, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob will have 12 sons. One of those sons is Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery into Egypt. He is going to grow by God's uh, command into the second in command in Egypt. There's a famine. And so all of Joseph's family will end up coming to live there in Egypt. And so now we don't have Abraham. Now we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And now we have these 12 sons and all of their families. The beginnings of the nation of Israel. But now that moves us to uh, step number three, slavery and exodus. Slavery and exodus. This period will cover about 400 years. Look at Exodus 1, verses 6 and 7. It says, Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So we've ended Genesis, and now we're into Exodus. And this, the nation of Israel start to grow. It's not just one family. Now it's this clan. It's not just a clan. Now it's becoming a larger nation. And the Egyptians in whose land they live are getting a little bit scared saying, hey, these guys are too numerous. They'll take over us. We better take care of them. So let's enslave them, which they promptly do. They enslave all of the Israelites and they put them to forced labor. This is going to go on for 400 years. <clears throat> 400 years that they live in slavery where they wonder, has God forgotten us? Were all these promises that God made to us anything at all? But God actually says, no, I am going to deliver you. And after 400 years, he raises up Moses to be the deliverer. This is Moses in the burning bush. Moses, the stutterer. Moses is going to come back and challenge Pharaoh and say, let my people go. The 10 plagues of Egypt will come upon Egypt. Until finally it comes to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. And again, God does something interesting. He says, I'm going to kill all of the firstborn, your only son of all the families, but I want to pass over you, Israel. So I want you to take a spotless lamb, an innocent lamb, and I want you to kill it and eat it, but take some of the blood and put it on the doors of your house. And if I see that blood on the doors of your house from that spotless lamb, I will pass over you so that this death does not cover you. Look at Exodus 12, starting at verse 23 through 27. It says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say this, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And sure enough, God brings this death of the firstborn onto all Egypt when he passes over Israel. The Egyptians are so angry, they expel the Israelites, but then they change their mind and chase them. They're backed up to the Red Sea. God is going to part the Red Sea, brings his people out, covers over their enemies, and now the Israelites are set free. God leads them by a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire out into the wilderness. And now we get to step four, the law and the land. 
the law and the land. And this period is going to cover about 65 years. So God takes his people with Moses out into the wilderness and he draws them to Sinai. He takes them to a mountain and God says, listen, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And I'm going to show you how to live in me. And so he takes them up there and look at Exodus 19 verses four through six. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." All right, so he brings them up there and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I originally made a covenant just with Abraham, but now I'm going to make a covenant with the entire nation of Israel. You're going to follow me. I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He says, I'm going to show you how to live. But look at the words he uses here. It's very interesting. He doesn't just say covenant. In verse 6, he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. That's an interesting language. You see, a priest is a go-between. A priest is somebody who mediates God to the people. Israel had priests. They had a whole tribe of priests. Well, what do you do if everybody in the nation is a priest? Who do you minister to if everybody is a priest? Well, they are to be the priest to the whole world. They are to be the beacon for the whole world. God's not just interested in Israel even way back then. He's still thinking about all the nations of the earth. He says, you are going to be the beginning. You're going to be my kingdom of priests, this holy nation that's going to be the the shining light out for the rest of the world of how to live with me. And so he doesn't just give them the Ten Commandments. He gives them something incredibly special. He gives them the tabernacle. All right, and so look at Exodus chapter 25, verses eight and nine, and look what it says here. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. See that? Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. The tabernacle was kind of like a portable temple. It was a tent-like structure, but it contained the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, and they could move it to all the places that they went. But God gave specific instructions. And when you look at all the the imagery on the tabernacle, it all calls back to Eden. There's all these pomegranates and angels and and kind of palm fronds. It's all hearkening back to Eden, where God dwelt with his people. And God is saying, I want to dwell with my people. And so I'm going to put my presence in your midst. I'm going to tabernacle, dwell among you. But he gives them more rules. So he doesn't just give them the Ten Commandments there in Exodus. He's also going to give them the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is just a whole grouping of laws. They are not going to go into the promised land immediately. They don't show a whole lot of faith. And so they'll wander for 40 years. And at the end of that, we'll get the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means second law. And if you read it, it's honestly a a retelling of the book of Leviticus. There's a little bit of explanation, but there's a lot of overlap. But he's telling them law again as they get ready to go into the promised land. So we've had Exodus, Leviticus, and then Deuteronomy, and then finally Joshua. Joshua is going to be the leader who comes after Moses. Moses dies and it'll be Joshua who takes them into the promised land. God is with Joshua and they're going to conquer all the nations there. This is, the, this is Jericho as the walls kind of fall out as they march around it seven times. And so Joshua leads them to conquer most of the promised land. And so they can actually live there and everything seems to be going well until we get to step five. That's promised land. Uh, where, where are we going to promise? I renamed this one. Uh, five judges and kings. 
Step five, judges and kings. So the book of Judges follows on the heels of the book of Joshua, and the book of Judges is a train wreck. This period is going to cover about 450 years, but remember, there's no king in Israel. They're supposed to have one king, it's the Lord, but they don't follow after them. Once they get the promised land, everybody goes about, everybody goes about building their houses and doing their own thing, and just like many of us, when we get what we want, we promptly forget about the Lord. And so these people got what they wanted. They said, I want to live however I want. I want to experience whatever I want. Thanks, God, for getting us here. I'll take it from here. And they just do whatever they want. They do whatever is right in their own eyes, and it descends into madness. You get Gideon. You get Samson. And you get a lot of terrible stories that do not show up in our kids' ministry. You get lots of different things that happen in the book of Judges. I'm telling you, you do. You get really selective. When you start reading the book of Judges, like, how did this show up in a kid's story? Noah's a little bit problematic, too, but that's for another day. All right, so... Uh, you got this, so Gideon and Samson. Um, but here's what happens at the end. They finally get a good judge in Samuel. Samuel is probably the best of their judges. And listen to what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting at verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Don't skip that. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so are they also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will rule over them. So just like in Eden, the Israelites are rejecting God as king. They said, no, 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 we don't want God as king. We want a human king. We want to be like everybody else. And God says, fine, I'm going to allow you to do this. But even then, God has a plan to bring them back to himself. And so he will give them a king. His name is Saul. And Saul comes along and Saul's okay at first. He's a good looking dude. He's got some skills, wins some battles. He does some good things, but as he gets some power, he also gets insecure and he starts cutting corners. He doesn't follow after the Lord with his whole heart. He doesn't do everything according to God's command. And because of this, God pulls away from him. He literally takes his spirit from him and it's going to kind of drive him mad. And instead, God will anoint a new king and his name is a name you probably recognize. His name is David. Now, David is the king of Israel. He's the best king they will ever have. He is the king through which everything else is going to follow. He is not perfect by a long shot, but he is the best that they have. This is where you get David and Goliath. After David is anointed, he has the whole David and Goliath experience. He will actually serve Saul for a while. Saul will try to kill him. He has to go out on the run. He still wins many battles. But finally, David will emerge and will come back to reign over a united Israel. All 12 tribes, all there in one place, David will reign over all of them. And God's going to make a promise to David. So look at 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11b, verse 16. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that means he's going to die, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That's his temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. 
But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now let that sink in for a second. God's making a promise. David, I'm going to make your line last forever. Well, how do you do that? How do you have a king who's going to last forever? You have to have somebody not simply earthly. You have to have somebody heavenly, somebody divine who could actually reign forever. So God's telegraphing here. David, I'm doing something through you and through your house, through your line that is bigger than you could ever possibly imagine. And so David rules, and this is where you get the books of First and Second Samuel, Uh, But by the end of it, when he dies, everything again begins to fall apart. This leads to step number six, civil war. And this period is going to last about 350 years. When Solomon, David's son, comes to power, he's got everything on the plate. Everybody has been conquered. There's no more enemies to fight him. He's got money coming in hand over fist. He is unbelievably wise. And so he learns all these different things. He's got all this power and this prestige. But instead of being a king in the vein of his father, David, he decides to be a king like everybody else. He begins to amass power and riches like everybody else. He wants more money. He wants more women. And he wants more military power. And he amasses it in droves. This is not what God commanded. This is not what God told him to do. This is not how you reign as a king of God's kingdom. And so it all begins to fall apart. And when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam will come onto the throne. And he decides, I'm going to be even worse than my father Solomon. I'm going to be even more overbearing than my father Solomon. And look what happens uh, in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 16 through 19. And when all Israel saw that the king, that's Rehoboam, did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We've got no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was the taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. It was a bad day for him. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Up until now, Israel has been one unified nation, 12 tribes. But after today, there will be two. The 10 northern tribes will form Israel. The two southern tribes, which is mainly just Judah, there's a little bit of Benjamin, a little bit of Simeon. It's really just Judah in the south is going to be their own place. That's where Jerusalem is. So you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And instead of having one king to reign over all Israel, you'll now have two. There'll be a king in Israel and a king in Judah. These people will sometimes fight against each other. Sometimes they will fight together against a common enemy, but they are going to be separate. And this is going to go on for a long period of time. This is not how God intended for his people to live. This is covering, by the way, the bulk of 2 Kings 1 and 2 Chronicles. And when you read all the prophets, whether it be uh, Jeremiah or, or Isaiah or all the minor prophets, Amos, Hosea, who have you, this is where all of those prophets really land. There's going to be a string of kings in both Israel and Judah. Most of them are terrible. And God will send prophets throughout to call his people back to him, to call them back to the temple, to call them back to prayer with him. 
You see, Solomon had built a temple for the Lord. It was there in Jerusalem. It was no longer the tabernacle. It was the temple. But everybody is rejecting the Lord. They're turning to their own way. And for 350 years, it all begins to fall apart, which leads to step seven, divided and conquered. Divided and conquered. Over the course of this 350-year period, there are other much larger empires that are gobbling up nations. And over the course of this period, both Israel and Judah are going to fall. Israel is first. In 722 BC, Assyria is the big bad guy on the block. They are the superpower. They are conquering everybody. And they're going to come in and conquer Israel, the northern kingdom. So look at 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 18 through 23. It says, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunders until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, there's that civil war, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So 722 BC, Assyria comes in, conquers the top 10 tribes and scatters them. They deport a ton of people and put them in different nations and take people from other nations and put them in the northern kingdom. It's a discombobulation. They didn't want them to think of themselves as Israelites anymore. And so everything is mixed up. So you've got all these foreigners intermixing with the the Jews who were left and Jews who were out here and all these other different places. And over time, they just weren't really all that Jewish at all. This land ultimately will be what we refer to as Samaria. Do you see now why the Jews might have some animosity towards the Samaritans? Because they weren't full Jews. They had been intermarrying for hundreds of years. And so this wasn't really their their Jewish nation. And ultimately, it just kind of walks off the map. The 10 tribes just disappear. Some people call them the lost 10 tribes. They're not lost. They're just all kinds of destroyed. 150 years is going to go by, and then it's going to be Judah's turn. After 150 years, Assyria is not the big bad guy on the block. It's Babylon. Babylon has conquered the Assyrians, and now they have come calling at Judah. And over the course of three successive exiles, they will take away people from Judah. So look at 2 Kings 25, verses 1 and 2, and then 21. It says, in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Down in verse 21, it says this, And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and Judah was taken into exile out of its land. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in, and he's going to destroy Jerusalem. It's gone. He will level it. The temple is destroyed. The place where God dwelt with his people is gone, and he's going to take into exile a bunch of people from Israel. This is Daniel, by the way. If you're here with us this summer, we looked at the book of Daniel. This is that period where God, Daniel's one of those people who gets taken away and put into exile into Babylon. But think about where we are in the story. God had made a covenant with his people, and it looks like his people are dead. 
Top 10 tribes are gone. And now the last remaining tribe, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of David, the one whose house is gonna land forever, it's gone. Jerusalem's destroyed. It looks like everything is over. And yet God had made a promise to them that he still had plans to prosper them, plans to give them a hope and a future. And so after 70 years, God fulfills his promise and brings them back. That leads us to step eight, the return. After the 70 years of exile, God brings people back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. Look at the book of Ezra, chapter one, verse one. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be, the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of the God that is in Jerusalem. Between 538 and 445, exiles are going to return to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. It's now not Babylon who is the big guy on the street. It's the Persians. There's kind of a bloodless coup, but now Babylon's out. Persia is in, and the Persians have a new policy. They say, we don't want to discombobulate everybody. We want you to go home. Be, be our vassal states, but go home. And so look at this. Out of the mouth of a pagan king, he is saying, I am going to build a place for the God of Israel so that he may dwell with them, and I'm going to pay for it. And so he sends all of these people back. He sends them with money and they rebuild the nation of Israel. It takes time. There's fits and starts. We looked at this two years ago. If you were with us two summers ago, we talked about the return of the exiles, the rebuilding that takes place. But God sends his people to rebuild. This is gonna cover, by the way, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the middle of this and also uh, a little bit of Esther. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are three prophetic books that are working through this period. So many of the prophets were in the early period before the exile. Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah are in the post-exilic period. These are prophets since to encourage them then. And so this is the history of the Old Testament, and that's where you get to uh, point nine, the intertestamental period. Something very interesting happens. God is silent. For 400 years, God says nothing. For 400 years, he doesn't send any more prophets. For 400 years, he doesn't do anything new. Now, there's things happening. This is where you get the Maccabees. This is where you get the story of Hanukkah. You get a lot of things going on. There's some extra biblical books that talk about the history during this period, but there's no prophets. There's no word of the Lord for 400 years. Things ought to begin to start making sense now where we start to see things return onto the scene because the last time we saw a 400-year period, God was about to bring salvation. When there was 400 years of slavery, God brought Moses to deliver the people. Well, now here's 400 years of silence that finally leads into step 10, the one we've all been waiting for, which is the gospel, the coming of Jesus Christ. I got 17 minutes left and we finally get to Jesus. That's kind of like your Bible too, by the way. I mean, I think it's a long time if you're reading the Bible to finally get to Jesus coming. But Jesus comes. He's the son of God. And the way he is described 
should make a lot of sense now. So John the Baptist comes on the scene first. He's the one preparing the way for the Lord. This is the cousin of Jesus. And look what he says in Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We talked about this on Sunday. He's saying the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here. The Messiah is coming. Right, he's about to be here. Prepare the way of the Lord. John will tell us what this looks like. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now look at verse 14. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt in the Greek can be translated tabernacled. It is the same word that is used in the Old Testament for God when he put his presence among his people. The word of God, Jesus comes to dwell with us. It's the same thing he wanted in Genesis, the same thing he was doing throughout all this period with the the tabernacle and the temple. Now we have flesh and blood. We have God coming in the flesh to dwell, to tabernacle with us, his people. But what is he going to do? How is he going to help us? Look at John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's a weird way to talk about a guy you just met. That's a weird way to describe somebody. Why would he say you are the Lamb of God? Well, most Jews would recognize a lamb instantly because every single year, They would kill a lamb and use its blood to pass over them. There was a spotless lamb whose blood was shed to cover their sins. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not just of Israel, but of the world. Look at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Does that sound familiar? Your son, your only son, is going to be given that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. And so Jesus comes to give his life for us. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus Christ is going to come to be the Passover lamb. He comes in the flesh to dwell with us, but he's going to be the sacrifice. Instead of a lamb standing in for us, or that ram in the thicket, no, Jesus Christ himself is going to cover our sins. And then look at Luke chapter 22, verse 20. It says, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying that this cup is that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Israel. And now he's making a covenant with us through his blood. It is a promise 
to say the same plan I started in the beginning is the same plan I'm unfolding, but the only way you can have this dwelling with me is through my sacrifice. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, just like he did on the night before he was crucified, he's saying this is the new covenant in my blood so that you can have a relationship with me. Everything Jesus does is a fulfillment of the things that have been coming before. On the very next day, Jesus Christ will do that very thing. He will be crucified. He will let his body be broken. His blood is going to be spilled. He will die a very real death, three days in the grave until God miraculously raises him from the dead. He is resurrected. He lives today. And now the resurrected Jesus, having paid for all of our sins and all of the punishment that we rightfully deserve, says, now you can dwell with me. When you put your faith in me, you can actually live in me. You can have a relationship with me. You can have the eternal life that I made you for in the beginning, the coming of Jesus Christ rightly divides all of human history because in him, the person of Jesus Christ, it is a fulfillment of God's plan and him and him alone can you and I have eternal life. This leads to step 11, the birth of the church. So after Jesus dies and resurrected, he ascends back into heaven And look what happens. 10 weeks later at a time called Pentecost, this was another festival in the time of Israel. In Acts chapter two, verses one through four, listen to what it says. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all there together in one place. These are all the believers who were just gathered together praying. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire, just like that. It sounds just like that. Isn't that great? That's fun. I'm not even watching. I'm going, ooh, look at that. Holy Spirit's coming. All right, so. (laughs) I didn't plan on that. That was gonna be great. I'm gonna keep that for the reader. All right, verse two. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we need to be very clear here. All right, when they start speaking in tongues, this isn't gibberish. This is Pentecost. It's a festival time where you got people from all over the world who have made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So you got a ton of people from a lot of different countries all in Jerusalem at the same time. When these guys come out of the upper room, they're speaking different languages, languages they didn't know before. And what they're saying is the gospel. So all these people from all these nations are hearing the gospel in all these languages. For all the families of the earth the gospel is now going forth to all of them. As Jesus is resurrected, he says, listen, this isn't gonna stay right here. No, I'm gonna send it out to the ends of the earth, to all the peoples of the earth. And so the Holy Spirit that now indwells his people, not just there in the temple, but in every single believer, the Holy Spirit fills them and they go out to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thousands of people joined the church that day. Over the course of the next coming days, thousands more will join the church. Everything goes well for a few months until there's a backlash from the Jews against these Christians. Everybody liked them at first, but then there's a, a backlash and then persecution happens. Stephen's going to get killed and now all these Christians are gonna get spread out all over Israel. But as they go, they take this gospel. They take the word of God to all these different places all around. But at the head of this persecution is a guy named Saul. Saul is going to get converted and he will become Paul. Paul becomes the greatest evangelist that Christianity has ever seen. He is going to preach not just to the Jews though, even though he is a Jew, he will preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. 
So as the gospel is going forth to all of Judea and Jerusalem and, and even to Samaria, but it's now going to all to the ends of the earth, Paul is going to all these new places sharing the gospel with people who've never been associated with Israel before. The church truly is now going all throughout the ends of the world. So look at Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the church continues to grow. This is the whole New Testament period. This is Acts. This is all these places like Galatia and Corinth and, and Philippi and, and Colossae and all these places where churches begin to spring up. In AD chapter 70, something terrible happens. The temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed again. The Romans this time, they're the new bad boy on the street, are going to level the temple. It's not going to be rebuilt for a long, long time. But this is a sign to everybody that we don't need a physical place to go worship anymore. There's a new temple, a temple not made with stones. This is a temple of flesh and blood. And so look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is Peter, a good Jew, grew up as a Jew. And listen to what he says and see if these words ring to you. He says, but you, he's talking to Christians, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is unbelievable. This is a Jew who knows his history that once they were not a people, but God took one man and turned him into a nation. God just picked you out of nowhere and God gave you mercy. He saved them out of slavery. Even though this was not the best nation, they kept sending their guts out, but God had given mercy after mercy after mercy and he made you a people. He made you a nation, but now God's spirit has come to everybody through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now there's a new people, a new Israel. It's anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. It is now a living temple that is spanning the planet. And Jesus says, just like it was said to the Israelites of old, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are the kingdom of priests that are being sent by God to minister him to a lost world that anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ may be saved. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we were in darkness, now we're in marvelous light. Once we didn't have mercy, but now we have mercy. This is what it means to be the people of God. And this is where we sit. We've caught up now in salvation history. This is where you and I come into the story. This is where we fit in because you have a role to play. I have a role to play. We right now have a role to play because the church has been growing from this point on. It moves all over the planet from country to country, nation to nation. And even now it continues to move all over the world until somebody shared the gospel with you and with me. And we became part of the people of God. And God's word is continuing to travel, but the story is not done yet. There's one step in the future, and that comes to step 12, the end. Seven minutes. Here we go. Revelation. Now look, I can't explain Revelation in seven minutes. I can't do it in 70 minutes. Listen, Revelation's weird. It is symbolic. It is hidden by design. There's lots of things in there you're going to understand, a lot of things you're not. There's a few things that are, a little, that are clear, though. Look what happens at the end of Revelation. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. These two passages are the last two chapters of Scripture. Listen to what it says in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. When Jesus Christ returns, he will return in judgment, but all evil is going to be wiped away and things will be as they were meant to be. But we're not going back to a garden, we're going to a city because now we have, been, we have multiplied. We have filled the earth and so we don't need a garden. We need a city. But God now says, my dwelling place will be with man. I will dwell with them and be their God. They will be my people. But guess what? No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, just as it was supposed to be. This is where we are going. The same thing God wanted in Genesis, the same thing that we thwarted. God never gave up on us and now he's opened up a pathway for all the families of the earth to be blessed through Jesus Christ so that we might all dwell together with him. Which leads us to the last passage, Revelation chapter 22, verses one through four. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb, catch that, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, don't miss that last line. It didn't say that the Lord would reign forever and ever. It said that they, his people, would reign forever and ever. What's he talking about? He's talking about our dominion. That now, finally, we will dwell with God, worshiping him, honoring him, and we will reign with him forever as his people with the tree of life and the city of God, just like he intended it to be, this is the entire story of the Bible. All right. So, a couple final things here. One, as you're reading the Bible from here on out, I hope that you can read it in context of this grander story to recognize that these individual things that you read are not there to be standing on their own. They're a part of this grand narrative arc, this grand story that God has been unfolding this entire time. But please don't miss this. It's all about Jesus. You cannot understand anything without Jesus. You can't understand the Old Testament or the New Testament or Revelation without Jesus. He is the center of everything. In the same way that Jesus says, all of the prophets and every Moses, they all spoke of me. Life eternal cannot be found outside of Jesus. He's the son of God. He's the only son, the one who is the, the spotless lamb who was sacrificed for us, who is alive today. And because he is perfect and because he is in the father, we too can be in the father. We dwell in him and with him forever and ever. Amen. It's all about Jesus. Here's the other thing. It's all about grace. Did you see how many times in the story the Lord should have ended it and started over? How many times the people rebelled rejected him, ignored him. God had every right to say, you're worthless, you deserve death, I'm starting over with somebody else. 
And again and again, he gives mercy after mercy, grace after grace, and he's continuing to do that for us, which means for you, for me. No matter who we are or what we've done, God is offering you forgiveness, not because you deserve it, not because you can work it off or make it right. It's total gift, grace. Why? Because he loves you. This is God's love story to his people all throughout history of saying, I will not give up on you. I will not abandon you. I'll keep the door open so that you, if you will simply put your faith in me, can have eternal life in me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and thank the Lord for that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for this story that we don't deserve to be a part of. Thank you for the grace upon grace and the mercy upon mercy. God, thank you for the witness of our brothers and sisters in the past and the assurance of things in the future to know, Lord, that you do actually have all these things under control when everything seems out of control and we see these long stretches of history where we just don't understand that you are always in control and no one can thwart your will. God, thank you for the future we have as your children to live with you and in you and together forever and ever. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your son, your sacrifice, your love. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to go breathe a little bit more. But here's the thing. A couple last things as we end. Uh, we will have this recorded. So if you've got friends who weren't here and they want to hear it, or if you want to listen to it again, we will have that. I gave you this packet because, again, I was talking fast. And maybe you just want to kind of have this kind of go over and really look through. If you've got questions, come talk to me afterwards. Come find me later, and that'll be great. I need your help on two things. Next week, we're going to do another one night only where we're going to do a Q&A on the Worldview series. We've been in the midst of Worldview for a while. And you might say, Adam, I got some questions, okay? Things that have come up, maybe things I haven't gotten to yet. But if you've got questions about the Bible, questions about Jesus, questions about this, what we did tonight, questions about things we've done in the past four or five weeks, and say, Adam, I have questions, then show up next Wednesday uh, and we're going to answer those questions. Now, I would love it if you could give me some of those questions ahead of time. So if you have those questions now, that allows me to kind of do a little bit of work and give you a better answer because I do not know everything uh, and I need some of that time. So uh, you can email me. You can write it on any of the comment cards. You can drop it off over at Connections here. You can give it to any of our staff. But to say, hey, I would like to give that question. We will be taking a few live next week, so we will do some of that. Uh, but, but show up next week, one night only, uh, for that. Uh, also, uh, outside, last time for you to pick up a backpack. If you have not done that and want to be a part of Backpacks and Bears, uh, we're going to be turning them back in on Sunday uh, and so listen, if you want some of those, we have some of those left. Uh, Rick and Deb are back there. Uh, and so you can pick one up tonight, but we do need it back by Sunday. Uh, don't feel obligated. But if you say, man, I've been meaning to do that, you need to do it right now. All right, so they're right out there. They can help you. They'll have all the tags on their instructions, help you out with that. Be an awesome way to bless somebody who's not gonna get a whole lot of blessing this Christmas. Man, let's continue to help people out. Final thing, and I'll say this to you. Uh, two weeks from this Wednesday, we're doing a brand new event um, called Speed Dating Community Group Edition. So, um, Listen, I know that some of you are not in a community group. And you're like, oh, it's so awkward to go and walk into a group of people. So how about this? In two Wednesdays, we're all going to come in here. We're not doing dinner, but I will give you dessert. And if you are not a part of a community group, so you're a visitor, you're new, or maybe you're a part of the church, you just aren't in a community group right now, I'm going to let you sit at a bunch of tables, and then I'm going to bring the community group leaders around to you five minutes at a time, and you're going to get to speed date them, all right? So they're going to get to introduce themselves to you, and you're going to get to meet like four or five leaders all at once. It's going to save you so much time and you get free dessert. It's going to be awesome. So one night only. I've never done this before. I don't know if I'll ever do it again. Don't miss it.
Two Wednesdays. It's coming up, all right? So speed dating, community group edition. You need a community group. Don't miss that. Be here in two weeks for that. Sound good? Listen, I'm two minutes over, but I got announcements in it all. I'm going to count that as a blessing. So guys, thank you for being here tonight. We love you guys. We'll see you on Sunday.